All right, welcome back to another installment of Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And Brad, uh, today we sit here kind of the nearing the end of March, and everybody's starting to think spring, I guess. And one of the things we think about when we uh, start to get into that spring season is some of the field work that's going to take place in, in pretty short order. So I know I got a call, uh, well, it was two weeks ago, and people were curious about the the drought situation. It was a local newspaper uh, trying to do a story on it. And I, you know, I kind of sat back, Brad, and I said, you know, it's pretty early to be too worried about uh, uh, drought in Southeast uh, Minnesota. And in fact, I kind of thought these dry conditions are going to be, you know, conducive to getting some timely field work done this year. Well, that's that's interesting because I was thinking that uh, that same on uh, that same track, Ryan. Uh, I actually had an interview last oh, late fall, early winter on the radio, and I was asked about that that uh, that the drought monitor um, was showing that we were in in a drought, and I I uh, mentioned the fact that I really could not be making any sort of recommendations related to that based on the fact that uh, we typically are quite wet in the springtime. And and uh, as we're sitting here right now, I know we're forecast to get uh, one to two inches of rain here over the next couple of days. Uh, that will have uh, been in the past by the time the podcast gets released. But uh, beyond that, uh, we had uh, quite a bit of snow cover where I'm at in the Mankato area and that melted and ran off and so we still have the typical spring ponding and and uh, so forth and so uh to me it's looking like it's just shaping up to be a pretty normal spring so far yeah because like like you said quite typically we deal with uh excess moisture and difficulties getting things done rather than uh you know having kind of a no holds barred uh, approach to spring and so anyways i you know Time will tell how things develop here as the season moves along. I know I looked at that uh, longer-term outlook, and it looks like we're going to be kind of equal chances. So it, you know, it's probably going to be a, a pretty normal year, so to speak. So yeah, I was looking at that this morning. It it is looking uh, slightly warmer than normal, but uh, we weren't in you know some real dark colored bullseye or anything like that and that's kind of been the way it's been trending now for quite a number of years um i guess uh, there's just nothing uh, there that to me that that makes me want to suggest we need to be thinking about deviating off of a path of normal management right now so uh with that i guess uh one of the first things we think about um you know, on, on more acres, I guess, uh, we, we do have some preliminary plans to plant some small grains coming up on April one. But, uh, for most of us in Southern Minnesota, we're really starting to think about corn and corn planting. And so today, uh, we've got with us, Jeff Coulter, uh, a corn production specialist at the university of Minnesota. And, and we're going to take some time and chat a little bit, uh, about corn planting and, and, uh, looking forward to to what's going to happen here so welcome jeff yeah good hello pleasure to be here yeah it's it's great to get you back on again and and so uh anyways uh let's uh let's take a little bit and and talk about uh what's on our minds as far as uh, uh corn planting and some of uh what's soon to approach here i know 
uh, the big date for us in, in southern Minnesota is that first uh, corn planting date, kind of the insurance planting date uh, that uh, we have wait till and until uh, to make sure that we're eligible for coverage if, uh, if we need to replant or something because we get a, a, a late frost or freeze. And so uh, that date uh, is a couple weeks out yet, uh, but... Uh, what are you thinking, Jeff, as far as, as that planning date, and and maybe let's we should start there. Is kind of yeah. Well, we all get excited when we see the snow melt, and we get a couple nice warm days with some wind to dry things out. But uh, you know, when we look at the long-term data from trials that have been conducted across Minnesota over a number of years, what we tend to see is that consistently that April 25 to May 12 period is when yields are typically maximized on average. However, you know, we can plant in mid-April in years when we have warmer weather occurring earlier in the season. And if we don't get a freeze in May that kills the young corn plants or uh, burns off the tops, then, uh, you know, the yield can be similar as that planted in later May. I know, I know uh, there's a lot of excitement to, you know, be the first one to get your corn in the ground and to get it up and looking good. But, um, you know, it's generally, I think, a good idea to wait until April 18 to 20 before we really get started. Uh, but at the same time, we need to be thinking about what the soil conditions are. And it's really important uh, that we don't get in there too early when things so are. So, Jeff, wet. going going back, uh, oh, when I started an extension about 25 years ago, we used to always throw out this rule of thumb uh, to farmers that they've got uh, on average about 10 good days to plant and they should be kind of sizing their equipment and managing their workload to get their corn planted in 10 days. Uh, you know, between the rain and, and when the soils fit and all that, that, uh, that uh, typically we got about, uh, we got about 10 days uh, before the, the, it started getting late in the season. Is, does that still hold true? Uh, have you looked at the, the number of working days? And I guess, you know, to some extent, the equipment has gotten so much bigger and more efficient. I, I know a lot of farmers, if, if uh, conditions are ideal, they're getting theirs done in five or six days compared to, to what it used to be. Uh, where are we at with that? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, it seems to me like a lot of growers can have all their corn planted in five days if they have five good working days and they're prepared beforehand. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a wait and see type of situation. On one hand, you don't want to get in there too early. Um, you know, on the other hand, you don't want to wait too long because if you wait a little bit and we start getting rain, uh, it doesn't take long before days start to slip by and all of a sudden you went from being early to being towards the late end of planting. So it's kind of a fine line. Uh, generally what uh, we found when we look at the planting date trials that have been conducted in Minnesota over a number of years and locations is that we don't really lose yield due to delayed planting until there's been about 140 growing degree days accumulated since the first available planting date. And that generally lines up to around uh, you know, around May 12 or later. Well, if, if there's anything I've kind of learned over the years, it's to, to be ready and then take those opportunities when they present themselves to, to get some field work done and, 
And so I, I, that's the biggest thing I've, uh, I've learned. Uh, I'm curious, Jeff, you know, you get all these old kind of, I don't know what to call them, Brad, the kind of the, uh, methodologies that people have had with, you know, with soil temperatures got to be at 50 degrees or, you know, an oak, uh, leaf has to be the size of a squirrel's ear or, or all these kind of, kind of, uh, random, uh, ideas people have had over time. And, uh, Curious to think, uh, Jeff. What are you, what are your thoughts on any of those old kind of wives' tales, or I, if that's what we call them? Well, I mean, I think those things are kind of you know in relation to you know how warm the weather is in the spring, and you know uh, corn isn't going to uh, germinate until um, we have soil temperature of fifty degrees. At the same time, you know we need to be thinking about what's going to happen and the number of working days and how much rain we're going to get and how many days that's going to cause us to lose. So, uh, you know, generally what I like to go by is, you know, starting around April 18 or maybe April 20, uh, you know, as soon as that ground is fit, the soil is ready, uh, I'd say go for it. And uh, even if the soil temperature isn't 50 degrees, uh, once we kind of get towards the later part of April, the expectation is, is that the soil temperature is going to warm up pretty soon. So, uh, you know, I think in Minnesota with a lot of the fine textured soils, it's really important to, you know, plant when the soils are dry enough and not be forced, not be put into a situation where you feel like you need to get out there um, when it's a little too wet. I think that can cause more harm than good. So a pretty common occurrence, I guess, is, is you know, we get to, get to the situation where we're, you know, mid-April and the soil conditions start to become fit for planting, and, and maybe they are. But uh, if we look out, let's say, in the 7- or 10-day forecast, uh, maybe there's some snow in the forecast, maybe the, the predictions to go abnormally cool. Uh, does that cause you any kind of hesitation as far as making planting decisions or, or are you going to stick to your guns and say, you know, it's fit to go and let's, uh, let's put some acres in today. Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan. Um, what I like to do is I like to really focus in on what are the, what's going to be the weather conditions on the one to two days following planting. And if we expect the soil temperature to reach around 40 degrees or lower within one to two days after corn planting, then that puts us at risk. Um, you know, we can have imbibitional chilling injury, uh, which can cause uh, emergence problems and other things. So, you know, I think what I like to do is, like you say, look into the, the near term forecast and uh, see what those one to two days after corn planting are going to be. And if we're going to have, you know, very cold temperatures with soil temps dropping to near 40 degrees or less, then it might be prudent to wait until uh, the next available opportunity. Jeff, uh, you, you mentioned before uh, um, the, the primary risk for planting too early being that we get the early frost and, and, uh, and freezing off the uh, newly emerged plant. Now, we have had years where that's happened, but the growing point was below the ground. And, and by all reports, uh, farmers have said, well, I didn't even really notice a yield hit on that. Um, do, we, do we have a feel for how big, uh, you know, at what point, I mean, is it just flat out the growing point, if the growing point's above the ground, or is there some other point where if we completely frost off the plant, it's going to start impacting yield? 
And do you have any thoughts uh, as far as what the heat unit accumulation is for our typical, our typical hybrids uh, uh, when that point is so that we can maybe do some of the math and, and uh, think about uh, whether we want to be out in the field or not? Yeah, um, well, generally the growing point on corn is below the soil surface until we get to about the V5 stage when the corn plant has five collared leaves. Um, and then at that point, it's right at the soil surface. So that, that doesn't happen till about June. Um, but, you know, if we have a, if the soil gets cold enough uh, with a freeze, it can freeze that top layer of soil and uh, kill the growing point, even though it's, even though it's below the soil surface. So that's something to, to consider. Uh, you know, generally what I've found is, you know, if we're planting corn, you know, right away after that insurance uh, date, um, that can put us at risk uh, for that, um, that frost in, in the spring on the young corn plants. Um, but if we wait a little bit, say till April 18th or maybe April 20th, uh, that definitely uh, helps to get us kind of over that hump and definitely reduces the, the potential for, uh, you know, having a plant up that's going to be impacted by that, by that frost. Um, you know, when we do get a freeze and we, that harms that, uh, that young seedling, that, that leaf tissue, uh, generally what happens is we typically have kind of like a buggy whipped plants where they kind of get wrapped up and some of the lower leaves are just fried. Um, and it takes a little while for those buggy whipped plants to come out of it. Uh, most of them do at that point. They're small enough. Um, we get a little wind and a little growth. Those leaves break free. Um, you know, it's going to affect yield, um, probably a couple percent, but probably not a huge amount. Um, you know, so that that's definitely something to consider. So, so okay, if so, we're going to wait a little bit if 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 we want to, and and kind of let let a couple of maybe a week or so, ten days, uh, pass pass that insurance date and get into that more uh, what you're calling kind of that optimal planting date, end of April, first week of May. Um, now what if, what if we turn rainy and we don't get into the, to the field then on that kind of optimum, what, what's our risk on, on the kind of the long-term side? So once we start getting delayed planning into May and, and, uh, you know, what, what are our expectations as far as the potential uh, yield penalty for, you know, maybe missing that optimum window because we waited for it, uh, you got some uh, some ballpark numbers to kind of give people? Yeah, well, the yield uh, that we typically see when we uh, plant between, say, May 13 and May 19th is about the same yield that we get on average if we're really pushing it early on the planting. Um, but one of the issues that we can see sometimes when we end up planting in mid-May is that we end up planting into soils that are a little bit wetter than we would like. So then we can sometimes see some issues with sidewall compaction, um, you know, a compacted layer down that's like five inches or so, you know, a little bit below the depth of the pre-plant tillage. Um, and those things can have an effect on the plants. Um, you know, corn has a nodal root system that establishes about an inch from the soil surface. So any sort of compaction around that seed zone or, you know, right below uh, where the seed is planted that's definitely definitely going to uh, impede the roots and uh, 
could have an effect later for water and nutrient uptake, especially if it turns dry. Hmm. Well, good. Um, so other things to think about as far as uh, spring planting, anything uh, coming to your mind as far as uh, what you're thinking about uh, when we're getting ready to plant? Well, I think, uh, you know, a key thing that we want to have is we want to have all of the plants emerging at the same time. We don't want to have variability in from plant to plant down the row. If we have that, then there's going to be competition among the plants and the plants that are behind aren't going to do as well. There was a study that was conducted a while ago uh, that looked at the effect of uneven emergence in the row. And it found that early in the season, if a plant was one leaf stage behind, it was only going to yield about 80% of what it normally would. And if it's two leaf stages behind due to delayed emergence, then it's only going to yield about half of what it normally would. So we really want all the plants to be coming up at the same time. And that's typically if, uh, related to, um, you know, having adequate and uniform moisture in the seed zone. So um, we really want to have good seed soil contact. Uh, we want to um, make sure that those seeds are placed uniformly in, in soil moisture and that some seeds aren't placed a little shallower or in drier soil, um, those kinds of things. So Jeff, one of the, one of the things that uh, from my side of things we're working with fertilizer uh, we really have stressed the need to get planted in a timely fashion because there's a lot of options for doing fertilizer application, side dress, or get it on later in the season. Um, and we've had a lot of research over the years that has shown, uh, for instance, that starter fertilizer may show a early uh, advantage as far as plant growth that does not translate to yield. And And we've seen similar things where uh, there may be hints of some nutrient deficiency very early in the growing uh, season um, that that uh, either the weather warms up or we do a fertilizer application and then we don't see any yield penalty. Uh, but then kind of going to Ryan's side, looking at, uh, at weeds and, and uh, weed pressure, uh, oftentimes we talk about or think about how sensitive corn is compared to soybeans to early weed pressure. Uh, so as it's been uh, so much wetter the last few years and doing timely field operations have been problematic, um, what, what, what are the, at what point in the, the growth stage of corn do we need to be worried about uh, whether we've gotten weed control done, whether we've gotten our total fertilizer package on, um, and uh, how do we prioritize these things? Well, I really believe in using pre-emergence herbicides if you can. So, you know, trying to get those down, um, you know, get those weeds under control. Uh, corn does not tolerate weed competition well. Um, those weeds take up water and nitrogen. Um, so corn just isn't a very competitive crop early on. So we wanna make sure that we get those weeds controlled before they get too large and start impacting corn. Um, same thing for those post-emergence applications, those need to be done timely. And uh, Ryan could maybe speak a little more to uh, the optimal timings for some of those. Yeah, I, Jeff, I concur with with what you just said. Uh, you know, generally with corn, it, you know, the probably the best practice is going to be to be weed free. Uh, you know, and uh, start with a really strong pre-emerge, and then use your post to kind of clean things up, so to speak, and. 
And uh, so kind of start and maintain a weed-free status is going to be where it's at. I know, Brad, we've uh, we've worked, uh, there was one project we had with the, the side dress uh, nitrogen, and uh, I don't know what happened, if they missed it on the pre or, or, or whatnot, but uh, I can remember one of our sites, uh, they waited to do their post-emergence uh, application. We certainly were seeing some yield uh, penalty at that point with you know, we had lambs cores that were three, four, five inches tall. And uh, certainly those, th there's damage done at that point uh, when the corn is uh, kind of at that side dress uh, status. And so, um, yeah, it's, you certainly can't look past that. And uh, I do think though, Brad, some of what you were kind of alluding to this whole concept of if you were planning to do spring urea, let's say, and uh, and uh, things are getting a little bit later and you're kind of in that optimum planting time zone, uh, by all means, go ahead and plant and, and we can uh, do some top dress or, or some other side dressing strategy later to, to kind of bring our nutrient needs up to snuff and uh, and to, to kind of make sure that we get planted because optimally, you know, we got to hit the, hit those windows. We can't delay that too late. And, and there are plenty of different options. Well, I've always talked about, you know, with some of the stuff that, that, that we deal with on the fertilizer side, that your strategy should be that you have an idea what your optimum management is and then understand what factors make you require adjustment and know what your options are. And so I think, you know, when you're looking broader picture beyond fertilizer, we're talking about other, other field operations also. Uh, we ha have one other factor we need to work in, and that's just simply prioritizing uh, what work is more important than others. And so, uh, you know, I guess, you know, kind of building on what you're saying, Ryan, um, provided we've gotten some nitrogen on, because that's very important for corn, um, Probably prioritizing weed control is a little bit higher than than the uh, than than getting the rest of that nitrogen package on. And then you you look at something like uh, just to bring this up, people have been trying to interseed cover crops at various uh, uh, times. You know, not a lot of acres, but there there are folks out there trying it, and certainly uh, there becomes kind of a, a time frame where. You know, we've done a couple of projects with this. You get that V4-5 time frame as far as seeding in the cover crop and, you know, pretty limited work, but we haven't seen a negative impact to yield. I don't know, Jeff, if you'd agree with that. That's kind of a, it kind of becomes a critical phase because uh, when you're in the field at that point in time, it's it's easier to cause plant injury, particularly now uh, that V5, 6, we start to see that growing point come above ground. The plant's starting to grow real rapidly. And uh, when you're driving around a field uh, at, during that kind of time scenario, uh, you can cause quite a bit of damage by cracking plants off and, and doing kind of mechanical damage to the plants. But I don't know what your thoughts are there, Jeff, as far as, uh, you know, if someone's looking at practice like that, is it is that kind of what we're looking at as far as, uh, you know, it's pretty safe at that point to 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 try a, a cultural practice like that? Well, I guess uh, one thing I think of is that seems kind of early for interceding a cover crop. Um, you know, definitely you can get in there, the rows are open and stuff. 
Um, you know, the issue I think about is the competition from the cover crop to the corn. You know, um, the things that I've been involved with where cover crops have been interceded, typically we've waited a little longer, say closer to the V7 stage before that interceding is done. I know then we're not getting as much light down into the canopy, but then we're definitely beyond the point where, uh, you know, we're likely to see comp competition with the corn and having that impact yield. Um, and I think it's important to bring up because I know that there, there are some folks that have been promoting pretty early seeding. And I, I think there are some, some real potential issues with like what you're talking about, that if we seed too early, you're essentially kind of creating a, a source of competition for that corn crop. And so we need to kind of think about waiting longer, which then it becomes more challenging to, to establish a cover crop because of the, some the corn becomes more competitive, I guess, and it shades and. Yeah. Yeah. Starting about the V7 stage, you know, towards uh, later June, that's when the corn becomes, you know, really dominant and it's not going to be long before long after that, when the rows start to close and, you know, once the corn's at the V7 stage, it's very competitive with weeds and other things. So, uh, you know, that, I guess that's something to take into account, but, you know, if we're, if we're pushing the, the timing on that cover crop interceding on the early side, we could be impacting corn yield in some cases. So um, it's kind of a fine line um, between getting out there too early versus, you know, getting out there early enough to get some, some growth and some light down to that, that cover crop. And I know the other big issue I've witnessed, Jeff, is that when the crop becomes competitive and we feed in the seed in the V5 to V7 stage, the the chance that you're going to have a successful establishment, you might get some cover crops up, but the the fact of the matter is you can see those kind of diminish over the over the course of the season because that crop is so competitive and it's going to kind of choke them out, so to speak. Yeah, that's definitely an issue. I've heard a lot of the cover crop researchers uh, discussing this and, you know, how they're concerned that, you know, yeah, we can intercede, we can get a cover crop established, but then they just don't do well under these shaded conditions. And I think now there's a lot of uh, interest in, can we just, you know, drill cover crops after corn and, and get a good stand and get them established? And maybe we don't have as have as much growth right away, but in the end, uh, the benefit might be the same as if they were interceded. So J Jeff, one, one other thing that I wanted to, to kind of cover and, and we, uh, talked to you, uh, several weeks ago about hybrid selection. So we don't need to, to revisit that, um, certainly in, in great detail, but, uh, for the sake of, and of course we don't know what the year is going to be looking like as things uh, shake out, um, let's just uh, remind our listeners at what uh, at what points they need to be thinking about uh, making some adjustment to the uh, hybrids they plan on planting. Uh, I realize that there's farmers who tend to select uh, everything in the same maturity range, maybe that 95 to 100 day, and then we've got other guys who uh, buy some things that really push it that go 105 to 110 and then they've got some other hybrids sitting in the shed below that and then they they try and stagger that as the the season uh, planting season goes along for the sake of uh, 
of uh, trying to be as efficient as possible with the amount of energy they get. So uh, when, at what point uh, do guys have to have in their the back of their head, just for the sake of kind of keeping it in mind, because it gets busy when, when planting season starts, um, where where we start making adjustments from, from the uh, hybrids that we uh, uh, selected and ordered versus uh, things we maybe need to acquire for the sake of, of uh, delayed planting. Yeah, once we get into about May 21 and beyond, then we want to be looking at uh, planting hybrids that are five to seven maturity units earlier than those that are considered full season. And once we get after May 31, it just gets risky to plant corn in Minnesota. And and once we get past May 31, we want to be looking at maturity units that are 15 or more less than that of a full season hybrid. And Brad, I think something that uh, to kind of think about there, you kind of mentioned the, the different kind of growers as far as some have staggered with different maturity groups. But, you know, a lot of people are planting hybrids that probably aren't wouldn't be considered like a full, full season. So Jeff, to your point, then it's, you know, if they've got 99 uh, day hybrids, let's say, or 95 to hundred day uh, in Southern Minnesota, you know, they can stick with those because they're probably good choices that they've made. And that gives them good flexibility from earlier planting to, you know, kind of on the late side of things, uh, hopefully before June, but it gives them that kind of flexibility because they aren't kind of pushing the envelope as far as really long season, full season maturities. Absolutely. That's a great point, Ryan. Yeah. I've seen that too. People have backed off on uh, the length of the maturity of their hybrids because they don't want to spend the money in uh, the hassle with drying it. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's definitely something to consider. You know, many growers are, you know, not full season, right away in terms of what they're planning to plant. So that gives them even more flexibility and they could likely uh, plan on using those hybrids throughout most of May until you get to about May 25 or later. And then it starts to get questionable. So let's think about that strategy a little bit. And, and uh, if we set aside the hassle and the cost of drying, what kind of yield uh, potential are people giving up if they've you know, move down from a full season uh, hybrid. If we take take Southern Minnesota for example, if 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 we aren't like maximizing our uh, maturity and uh, and uh, you know, if we do hit an optimum date, what what kind of opportunities are people missing? I guess if we don't account for drying costs or any of that hassle. Yeah, uh, well, definitely the full season hybrids can uh, produce higher yield. Uh, we've seen that pretty consistent in Southern Minnesota. We've ran the economics on it a number of different ways using a lot of different uh, grain and drying costs and stuff. And what we see is that in general in Southern Minnesota, kind of that uh, 102, 103 day range is uh, kind of optimum for uh, maximizing profitability in a lot of cases. Uh, You can push it a little uh, further, um, you know, 104, 105 and maybe a little more in some pockets close to the Iowa border, but, uh, you know, and, and you can get a, you know, a couple percent higher yield. Definitely. So some, uh, there used to be a philosophy of some dairy farmers who were planting silage corn, who would plant maybe a 115 day, uh, I think in a lot of cases, because, 
the uh, characteristics of some of those hybrids had a lot more vegetation on them than the earlier season ones, and they weren't letting them go to full maturity anyway. Um, is that still a thing, as or have we kind of moved beyond that as far as corn breeding? Absolutely, yes. No, we're still doing that. So uh, generally, the optimum relative maturity for silage corn is about five to ten units longer than that which you would use for grain. Excellent. Uh, so, Jeff, something that uh, maybe we're not going to be adjusting now, given the the time frame here, but uh, I know you've done quite a bit of work with row spacing and and things like that. Uh, uh, so outside of, you know, currently we're kind of locked into whatever we're going to use for our planting equipment and in row spacing. But uh, if we look at alternative row spacing, so probably the common most, uh, you know, 30 inch rows, if we look at some of these uh, more narrow row situations, um, what can you tell us about those as far as yield and whatnot? Well, first off, I'd like to say, you know, based on what I've seen, the research that, that I've been part of and that from neighboring states, it just seems like it's very difficult to beat 30 inch rows for corn. Um, you know, if we go to a narrower row width, it typically doesn't reduce yield, but there just isn't a, a clear, consistent uh, yield increase uh, that's significant. Um, you know, sometimes we do get a yield increase. I think it's generally in situations where there is like a moisture deficiency or, you know, nutrient deficiency and, you know, the plants that are spaced out a little better, they don't compete quite as much and, um, you know, that may be beneficial. But uh, I don't think there's a, a real strong compelling advantage to 30 inch rows compared to, or excuse me, to narrow rows compared to 30 inch rows for corn. I think the bigger advantage is for soybean to get that, that crop to canopy earlier. You know, there's a lot of years where in August we see we can still row the soybeans, and uh, I would think that that would have a an impact on yield, and uh, for soybean. So the benefit might be if we're going to switch, we're going to see the benefit in our soybean, and uh, and not so much, uh, at least not as predictable in, in corn as far as having some kind of benefit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think probably. You know, down the road, maybe the next generation of farmers may uh, see a, a clear benefit to the narrower rows. Uh, what we've seen is, you know, the optimum population for corn has kind of creeped its way upward. And, you know, corn in 30-inch rows has, has been able to handle that. But maybe it will get to the point where the optimum populations are, are much higher than they are now. Maybe they'll be in the low to mid-40s. Uh, for 40,000 plants per acre or more for the optimum uh, final stand. And if we get to that point, um, you know, maybe those hybrids will be better suited to narrower rows then so that the plants are, you know, better spaced out. They're not competing so much and they're able to utilize the soil water and nutrients better. But uh, I don't I don't see us being there yet. Um, we've done trials with different row spacings and at different populations. And you know, one would think that at the high populations, you'd see an advantage to the narrow rows, but uh, we haven't seen that in Minnesota and uh, typically haven't seen that in Wisconsin either. Yeah, and I, I don't want to uh, to uh, run the uh, podcast off on a tangent, but uh, it's, it's also conceivable with where we're headed technology-wise with farm machinery and autonomy, uh, we may be going in some directions where we may actually be able to 
flex that depending on site characteristics and the year. You know, I mean, some of the some of the things that are being talked about for autonomous equipment are single row uh, planters and so forth. You know, like in swarms versus you know one giant planter that's fixed and so forth. And it's it's possible we may. Uh, uh, we may see some real changes in that uh, in our lifetime. It's not probably imminent in the, in the near future, but uh, it's something to think about. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I think about is, you know, with 30-inch rows, it's a lot easier to navigate. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities now for in-season nitrogen application. And there's a number of growers that are, you know, targeting a late in-season nitrogen application, say, you know, 10 days before tasseling. And, uh, you know, when you have corn that's in narrow rows, it makes it much more difficult to get that done. Mike, in personal experience, scorting, or, uh, scouting corn that, uh, that's in the 15 or 20s is not, uh, not much fun, you know, at least uh, at my size, I guess. It's, uh, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd much rather be in 30-inch rows late in the season uh, looking for, for disease and insect pressure. And uh, so there's a, that kind of perspective too, I guess. Yeah, you know, one way to really, you know, determine if you're, how, you know, how you're doing in 30 inch rows is go out there and, you know, during the grain filling period or, you know, after tasseling. And uh, if there's sunlight hitting the soil surface, you know, that's an indication that you're not using all of the sunlight and that maybe narrower rows and or a higher population may be necessary. But if you're capturing all of the light, uh, you know, after tasseling, you know, that's, that's about as good as you can do. So Jeff, I don't know if you want to talk to this, but, uh, uh before we started cutting our podcast here today, uh, we were talking a little bit about some, some work you've got, uh, in the works for this year, as far as, uh, some side dressing. And, uh, I don't know, it might be interesting for folks to, uh, to kind of, uh, hear about that, or at least kind of, uh, maybe give them an update on, on what's in the works for this year. Yeah, so one thing I'm working on this summer, I'm working on a project with Yushin Mao, and he is the uh, director of the Precision Ag Center at the University of Minnesota. And uh, Yushin's got a grant from the NRCS to uh, look at site-specific nitrogen management for corn. Uh, he calls it precision nitrogen management. And uh, basically with this approach, uh, what we're trying to test is instead of just going out and putting a flat rate on a field uh, pre-plant, uh, the idea is, is that one puts strips in the field of different rates of N applied pre-plant, say from like, say maybe 35% of your total N rate, 70% of the total N rate, 100%, and then a high rate, such as like a 125% or something like that. And then uh, the idea is, is that with satellite imagery, um, you can assess the vegetation index of this corn. So it's it's called NDVI, which is a vegetation index. Kind of, it's an indication of you know how how much growth you got out there in that crop, and based on on the response of the vegetation index to nitrogen fertilizer, that response is very similar to the corn grain yield response to nitrogen fertilizer. So. Uh, you got these pre-plant strips of N rates that are out there, and then we get satellite imagery around the V7 stage, and then based on that, uh, one can develop site-specific uh, side dress nitrogen application rates. Um, so that's been tested over the last couple years. 
Uh, they've developed an algorithm to um, be able to predict how much N to apply um, based, based on all of that. Uh, so we're testing that out in some fields this, this year. Uh, we are still looking for some uh, cooperating growers who would like to uh, work with us. So if anybody is interested, uh, we would uh, really like to talk with them. Um, and it works great if they have an agronomist or consultant that they're working with who does their, uh, their mapping and their prescription files and such. So uh, yeah, that's something we're trying to test this year. And um, the idea is, is that we, one might be able to use less N overall and have a higher yield from the total field. So, uh, and, and environmental benefits. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So this kind of uh, site specific or uh, in some circumstances, Brad, it might be a adaptive nitrogen management. Uh, these are this certainly a nut that needs to be cracked because there's a lot of people trying um, different methods as far as uh, uh, trying to get that to work and become more efficient users of nitrogen. And I know, Brad, I don't know, do you have some projects in the field this year? I know you've been working with a couple of growers on some kind of a, a different approach, but the same kind of uh, adaptive or site-specific management uh, strategies. Well, one project that we're working with right now uh, with Dan Kaiser was to sort of, the intent was to recalibrate the pre-plant soil nitrate test because the uh, original research that went into our recommendations for pre-plant soil nitrate data are 25 plus years old now, uh, 30 years old. I actually worked on that stuff when I was an undergraduate. Um, and and uh, we just sort of felt like that that needed to be redone. But one of the things that we have discovered in the course of this, and we've talked about this in some other uh, places, is that we are finding extraordinarily low levels of nitrates uh, across the board. And this seems to be translating into the need for higher rates of nitrogen to uh, maximize yield. And so we're, we're almost um, stumbling upon something of, of uh, thinking that potentially while we were looking at testing for soil nitrates and then giving a nitrogen credit, we may actually find that if we test and the number is really low, we may actually have to raise the rate some to us, but we're not at the point where we can make that recommendation. Uh, but it's it's been intriguing to look at, and I think uh, you know part of this uh, we're also going to come back and look at, and it gets back to some of the stuff that Jeff Vetch found last year was this correlation, strong correlation between the yield with zero nitrogen applied and then the uh, MRTN nitrogen rate. Um, and so that is a component of this project we're doing is, is there are various nitrogen rates, including a zero rate. And, and so we are, uh, hopefully we're going to be able to correlate some of that soil test data uh, with uh, yield at zero N and, and then the overall nitrogen response curve um, to get to, to get in on that too, because uh, uh, that's that's obviously going to be a big uh, a big question mark as we move forward as we try and, and get much more precise with nitrogen rates for the sake of water quality outcomes. Um, there's going to be no appetite for leaving a lot of yield on the table, and so we we need to be able to kind of pick those sites out. 
Well, excellent. Well, we've got uh, we've got a lot of growing season ahead of us. The entire thing, as a matter of fact, and and so we'll have to kind of keep our eyes on uh, environmental conditions and how things progress. And I'm I'm sure we'll have to follow up, Brad, with a podcast on on sort of that time frame, that early June kind of adaptive nitrogen. Where are things at? Where you know what are people seeing? And and we'll follow up at that point in time to maybe talk in more depth about uh, some of these ideas and things that people are trying. And and as with, with just simply with field operations, we've talked so much in the past that uh, uh, overall nitrogen fate is controlled by how wet it is. And so I guess we kind of need to sort of just kind of wait and see how the planting season progresses to see where we're at with those things. Well, excellent. Anything uh, else you guys want to talk about today? All right. Well, I want to uh, thank our guest, Jeff Coulter, and then I, I want to thank all our listeners out there for listening to another session of the uh, Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Thank you. Thank you.